Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Welcome to this special episode of Idaho Reports. We're bringing you live coverage of Governor Brad Little's State of the State Address. Joining me in studio is Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News and Dr. Stephanie Witt of Boise State University School of Public Policy. Alex Adams, Administrator for the Division of Financial Management, is joining us via Zoom. Let's take a look at the State House and lawmakers, 105 lawmakers are uh, gathering in the House chambers, welcoming Governor Brad Little right now. He's also joined by the justices from the Idaho Supreme Court. Kevin, as he's approaching the uh, podium, what are you gonna be listening for in today's speech? Well, I think it really comes down to expectations and how does the governor weigh the expectations that come with a $1.6 billion surplus how, how does he wrestle the various demands on that money, whether we're talking about tax cuts or investments in infrastructure or education? How does he navigate all of that in an election year for himself and for 105 legislators? It's going to be a very interesting speech. Yeah, Dr. Witt, I, I'm curious. There have been so many challenges for Idaho's communities, and those challenges have been varied. They haven't been the same in ARCO as they've been in Boise or Coeur d'Alene. What are you going to be listening for? Well, I think Kevin summarized it well. Uh, the fighting is almost worse when we have more money than when we have less. And so uh, it will see the governor setting his priorities uh, as well as navigating what has sometimes been a contentious relationship between himself and the legislature. And of course, we have several people running for statewide office who are in the legislature. So this should be a really interesting year. We see now that Idaho's constitutional officers just entered the chamber, including uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ibarra, Attorney General Lawrence Wasden, Secretary of State Lawrence Denny. It looks like now Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan has joined the House Speaker at the podium and they're getting ready to welcome the governor. You know, as we're waiting, Kevin, I'm curious about this dynamic. You know, obviously his top opponent in the Republican primary, Lieutenant Governor McGeehan, will be up there during the speech right behind him. Uh, how much of that contentious primary do you think will drive the agenda this year? Well, I'll be watching for the body language. I think a lot of us will be. But yeah, I, I think that this is for a a gubernatorial candidate, an incumbent and Brad Little, who hasn't announced his plans for re-election, but is, for all intents and purposes, let everybody know that he's planning to seek re-election. This begins the political year in earnest. Governor Little is greeting the senators now, making his way to the podium. Let's go ahead and listen in. Don't get too at ease. 
All right. Mr. Speaker, pro tem, Madam President, honored legislators, my fellow constitutional officers, Mr. Chief Justice, members of the judiciary, my family, friends, and my fellow Idahoans. It's good to deliver this speech back in the chambers. <clears throat> Last year, I closed my state of the state by saying, in times of hardship, opportunities for growth emerges. There's no doubt the past couple of years have presented incredible challenges. Our frontline workers in healthcare, public safety, and education in particular have done an exceptional job. Today, we have a few of those pandemic heroes with us. They are nurses, doctors, police officers, guardsmen, and teachers. I would like to invite them to stand and please, everyone, everyone, please join me and recognize them and their colleagues and thanking them for their service to our great state. My friends, I stand before you today with great optimism and excitement about the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity before us. Idaho's economy is stronger than ever before. We're one of only four states with more jobs today than before the pandemic. Idahoans are working. We have one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. Our budget is balanced. We have robust reserves. Idaho businesses and citizens benefit from living and working in the least regulated state in the nation. We've turned, back, we've turned more money back to the citizens through historic tax relief and strategic investments in areas that impact their daily lives. And for the second year in a row, we have another record budget surplus. All this success has made Idaho even more desirable place to live. We are all experiencing the opportunities and the challenges of growth. As I've traveled the state, Idahoans often remind me of a task left undone, building a wall around Idaho and making California pay for it. <laughs> our friends, our success is no accident. While other states liquidated their rainy day funds and begged politicians in Washington, D.C. for a bailout, together we rolled up our sleeves and made tough decisions and led Idaho. In Idaho, we manage government the same way families manage a household budget. It's basic kitchen table economics. It means facing trade-offs head on, choosing to live within our means, saving for hard times, cutting waste, and stretching our dollars further. While D.C. is digging the country into a $29 trillion hole, Idaho has a record surplus of $1.9 billion in county. 
While DC continues to crank out onerous new regulations, we took as axed Idaho regulations for three straight years, and we continue to widen our lead as the least regulated state in the nation. In fact, since I took office three years ago, we have cut or simplified 95% of Idaho regulations. <laughs> and now, through our zero-based regulation initiative, this year, we aim to cut or simplify another 20% of what remains, removing the rocks from the shoes of small businesses. While DC wants to raise taxes on all citizens, as Bidenflation surges, Idaho has put more money back into people's pockets. Last year together, we cut income taxes and returned $450 million to all Idaho citizens and businesses. It was called the biggest tax cut in state history, but I call it a good start. While President Biden divides Americans in his attempts to elevate the role of government in citizens' lives, coercing, coercing Americans with government-imposed vaccine mandates, Idaho said no. Our lawsuits challenging Biden's polarizing vaccine mandates are working. I banned divisive vaccine passports. I never mandated masks or vaccines. We responded to a crisis with a balanced approach and kept Idaho open. <clears throat> and while President Biden continues to dismiss the catastrophe at the U.S.-Mexico border, Idaho is banding together with other states to act. I traveled to the border last summer where I saw for myself how Mexican drug cartels control access to our country, all because of President Biden's flawed border policies. This is completely unacceptable. Biden's inaction has spawned a growing drug threat to our state, and the vast majority of illicit drugs in Idaho are now sourced in Mexico. Idaho families deserve better. Last summer, I sent a specialized team of the Idaho State Troopers to Arizona to help fight the drug flow into our country and our state. We sent our best to protect Americans and Idahoans from drug cartels. And those troopers returned with new knowledge and training to help law enforcement here at home fight the drugs that have devastated so many lives. We have some of those troopers here with us today. Gentlemen, please stand so we can recognize you. And now, I'm asking for your support to deploy Operation Esto Perpetua. I'll have more to share in the coming weeks, but Operation Esto Perpetua will bring together law enforcement and communities in new ways. We will continue to fight the consequences of our loose border and curb the smuggling of killer drugs, such as fentanyl, into our state from Mexico.
Folks, we've been able to set the example of accountable, responsible government here in Idaho. My family and Teresa's have been in Idaho for generations. We want nothing more than for our grandchildren, Henry, Dylan, Jack, Lola, Jay, and Josephine, to stay settled in Idaho and enjoy their grandchildren here. Kids, can you wave for me? Teresa and I want the same for your grandchildren, too. By now, you know my goal, for Idaho to be a place where we all have the opportunity to thrive and where our children and grandchildren choose to stay and for the ones that left to choose to return. Think about someone you know who's demonstrated true leadership. For me, my father, David Little, Teresa's father, Phil Solon, and an old friend, Louise Shattuck, come to mind. Here's what I've learned from them. Leaders give people confidence and show the way through humble strength. Leaders go through life with a spirit of service. Leaders listen. The voice of a leader is effective, not just loud. Every day I endeavor to live up to the example of my mentors. That is what the people of Idaho deserve from their governor, and that is what they deserve from all who are elected to public office. <clears throat> I have a plan for Idaho, a path to give back our record budget surplus to Idahoans through continued tax relief and strategic investments where they make the biggest difference in their daily lives. My plan is called Leading Idaho. My plan is rooted in a long-standing conservative principle, fiscal discipline. For the first time in state history, Idaho was upgraded to a AAA credit rating. It is an achievement that will save taxpayer dollars and importantly, reflects our dedication to conservative, responsible budgeting. Earlier today, I delivered a budget that is balanced and holds the line on spending. My budget pays off state building debt, saving taxpayers tens of millions of dollars in interest payment. My budget puts us on a path to pay off all known deferred maintenance needs, those backlog repairs needed in our infrastructure over the next 10 years. And my budget bolsters rainy day funds to a record level, putting them at more than $1 billion in the bank to guard against future downturns. We must be even more vigilant in perceived times of plenty to make decisions that are prudent and withstand the test of time. We did not spend our way to a surplus, and budget surplus must never become an excuse for wasteful spending. There's no better feeling than giving back to hardworking Idahoans more of what they've earned. To date, in my first term, we have cut nearly $1 billion in taxes. <laughs> Let me repeat that. Together, we have given back nearly $1 billion to Idahoans through income tax relief, property tax relief, and relief from unemployment taxes on Idaho businesses. 
And today I am proposing we double down on our efforts. I propose we return more than $1 billion in income tax relief to Idaho taxpayers over the next five years. Let's not wait. Right now, Idaho families are forced to pay more for food, gas, and everyday goods as inflation swells under Biden's watch. Poor handling of the economy, oppressive regulations, and a bloated federal budget have all contributed to inflation rates we have not seen for 40 years. With Biden inflation exploding, let's immediately pass $600 million in income tax relief that we can get back into the wallets of all Idahoans this spring. I propose $350 million in immediate rebates and $250 million in ongoing income tax relief, allowing working families to keep more of what they earned and free them from the penalty of living under historic inflation. We cannot delay in deploying this investment in working families. We must also support Idaho's small businesses, the backbone of our economy. Last year, we strengthened our unemployment trust fund, making it one of the most solvent funds in the country. Doing so led to a $200 million tax cut for Idaho businesses. I propose we lock in those lower rates for the next two years, saving Idaho businesses $64 million so they can continue creating good Idaho jobs. Some say we shouldn't cut taxes, that we have to choose between cutting taxes and meeting the important needs of our state. This is false. My budget shows we can do both. We can spend less than we bring in, offer tax relief, and fund the top priorities, education and infrastructure. More than 130 years ago, the founders of our state, in writing the Idaho Constitution, recognize the stability and endurance of our Republican form of government depends mainly on, quote, the intelligence of the people. A person's education starts at home. Parents are in the driver's seat, as they should be, and always will be in Idaho. Children today will become the workforce of tomorrow. They'll be the engineers, loggers, doctors, farmers, construction workers, entrepreneurs, teachers, truckers, you name it. We want our Idaho students to receive a strong foundation of learning now so they can stay here and make our state strong for future generations. And Idaho schools partner with parents in the education of their children. That's why I propose making the largest investment in Idaho education ever. My budget adds $1.1 billion over the next five years to improve Idaho education. And it all starts with literacy. Today, I propose adding $47 million in ongoing funding to literacy programs to build on the reading success that parents instill at home. Local school districts across Idaho, with input from families, will decide how best to deploy the resources. 
Literacy has been my top priority because it just makes sense. Our investments in education later on will have more impact if we can work with families to get more students reading proficiently early on. Adding these investments now will increase state literacy funding fivefold since I took office just three years ago. I cannot think of a more back-to-basics investment that will make a meaningful difference in students' lives today and for years to come. <clears throat> the key to strong schools is parental involvement. Our system of public education in Idaho is locally driven, and the system works best when parents and families engage. Parents partner with teachers in the education of their children. And we cannot meet our commitment to our students without the support of the people that teach them in the classroom. If you're running a business, you know you can only attract and retain dedicated quality workers by paying them competitively, offering good benefits, and making them feel valued. Our educator workforce is no different. And my budget invests in these partners, our teachers, which ultimately serves Idaho families. The pandemic pushed many parents toward new ways of meeting the educational needs of their children. Last year, we served 18,000 Idaho families, 46,000 students with grants to help cover educational needs outside of the classroom. And now to build on our success, I'm proposing $50 million for the new Empowering Parents Grants. The grants will cover such things as computers, tutoring, internet connectivity, and other needs, so students have the best chance of success. The Empowering Parents Grants put families in control of their child's education, as it should be. My Leading Idaho plan also makes other key investments to, the support, to support law enforcement, our veterans, our valued members of the Idaho National Guard, and safe and secure elections. I want to add $60 million to address the needs within the Idaho State Police. Idaho is a state that openly values its police officers. While others seek to defund the police, Idaho defends the police. <laughs> Idaho is truly a state that backs the blue. I also propose we make the biggest investment ever in our state veterans' homes, $75 million to give our veterans Better, a better quality of life and improve the services for them. Our veterans have done so much for us and they deserve it. I also want to invest in the soldiers and the airmen and the Idaho National Guard. My plan doubles our investment in scholarships to guardsmen, which boosts our effort to get more Idahoans to sign up for the Guard. Military service has always been and always will be one of the most honorable ways for a person to serve their community, state, and country. I'm so grateful to our guardsmen 
and all military and service members and veterans for all they have done and continue to do to promote freedom and peace in our country. I would like to invite anyone in the room here today who has served in the military to please stand so we can recognize and thank you for your service. can honor the service of our military heroes by doing our part to make America as strong as possible. And we all know free and fair elections are a cornerstone of our democracy. We're very fortunate to live in Idaho where our elections are free of fraud. But there's more we can do to elevate Idahoans' trust in their elections. Last year, I established my cybersecurity task force to come up with new ways to protect Idaho from cyber attacks and bolster election integrity. My Leading Idaho Plan implements recommendations from the task force. I am proposing $12 million to establish the new Cyber Response and Defense Fund to ensure the state is prepared to respond to any cyber attack from bad actors in China, Russia, or elsewhere. I'm also pushing for proactive integrity audits to enhance the transparency and confidence of our elections here in Idaho. We must make election integrity a priority to give our citizens confidence that their vote matters. <laughs> Idaho has a strong track record of giving back through tax relief and by making significant investments in the areas that impact Idahoans' daily lives the most. Things like clean and plentiful water for a strong agricultural sector, improved broadband access, increased medical capacity to support a healthy Idaho and our healthcare heroes, better access to outdoor recreation and improved land and fire management, and better opportunities through investments in career technical education, colleges, workforce development, housing, and childcare. The list goes on and on. My Leading Idaho Plan will continue to invest in all these important areas and many others. <laughs> Protecting Idahoans of all ages from the affliction of mental illness and addiction led to the creation of the three branch the three-branch Behavioral Health Council in 2020. It was a step that is now helping Idaho families access the services they need when they need it most. Behavioral health issues affect Idaho's correction system, judicial system, hospitals, local communities, and schools. Today, we're joined by Krista Knighting, the brave teacher who confronted and disarmed a 12-year-old girl at school last May in Rigby. Krista calmly took the gun away from the little girl in crisis and then held her in her arms until the police arrived. Krista, please stand so we can recognize you.
As I know Krista can attest, there's a strong connection between safe communities and access to behavioral health resources for Idahoans of all ages. Today, I am proposing we accelerate the implementation of the Behavioral Health Council's recommendations by investing $50 million to improve behavioral health access across Idaho. It is one of many steps we will take to prevent tragedy, improve lives, and make our communities safer. Another area where we're making real progress to improve safety is the time Idahoans spend on the road. Last year together, we passed the largest transportation funding package in state history. Our sustainable transportation funding solution added historic amounts to new infrastructure to improve safety and ease congestion, giving all Idahoans more precious time with their family. And we did it without raising taxes. But we cannot stop there. The continued prosperity of our farmers, ranchers, the folks who work in the woods depends on safe, efficient system of roads and bridges. We cannot continue our record economic trajectory if our logging trucks can't get across old bridges and if we can't get our farm products to market. My budget invests another $200 million in ongoing funding to fully address our known maintenance needs locally and statewide. I also propose we invest another $200 million in one-time funding to clear out one-third of the backlog of deficient bridges. We have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to fully fund known needs, to maintain our roads and bridges permanently with no new taxes. I am unwilling to put the safety of our Idahoans, the maintenance of our state roads and bridges, at the whims of the feds. We must not look to Washington, D.C. to solve our problems. Leading Idaho means addressing our own state needs. Together, we'll show Washington, D.C. how to tackle transportation by fully funding known gaps with no new taxes and providing long-term funding for long-term needs. Ladies and gentlemen, the challenges of the past two years for many, including myself, have driven us to more fervent prayer and frequent prayer and a closer relationship with our Creator. Out of the hardships, we have strengthened. We've kept things headed in the right direction. We won't spoil the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity before us to give people back their hard-earned dollars through tax relief and make historic investments where they matter the most. We will stay focused on leading Idaho. I want to thank my family for their unwavering support. Family is the nucleus of all that is important in life. To our First Lady, her good heart is a source of strength and peace for our family and the entire state. Teresa, thank you and I love you. And I want to thank you, the people of Idaho, for Idaho's success. You have proven 
you will always stand up for the strength and prosperity of our great state. Thank you, and God bless. You just listened to Governor Brad Little's State of the State Address kicking off the 2022 legislative session. Joining me for reactions and analysis are Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News, Dr. Stephanie Witt of Boise State University, and Alex Adams, Administrator for the Division of Financial Management. Alex, thanks for taking the time to join us. You worked closely with the governor to put together this budget and this speech. Can you give us the, the top highlights that the governor uh, especially wants to drive home? Well, Melissa, I think uh, the governor's focused on leading Idaho. He put forth a budget that is fiscally conservative and prudent while leveraging the position the state is in to make once in a lifetime investments in Idaho's future. Uh, the things I would highlight is this budget has the largest increase in education in state history, the largest tax cut in state history, the largest transportation infrastructure investment in state history, while still holding the line on spending, while paying off state debt, while putting the state on a path to pay off deferred maintenance costs over the next 10 years, and while maximizing our rainy day funds. That's leadership, unless Governor Brad Little is leading Idaho. I'm curious, I want to ask you about that holding the line on spending. It's a line that I noted in the governor's speech. You're, you're talking about holding the line on spending, but you're also making hundreds of millions of dollars in investments in transportation, education, other areas, as well as doing um, large tax cuts, as you mentioned. Do, are those two things in conflict? So um, the one thing I would note is that the governor's approach to this budget was a lot of the uh, surplus is one time in nature. It's buoyed by record and unsustainable levels of federal spending. Uh, so uh, he leveraged it for one time investments in things like veterans homes and senior centers and other critical infrastructure uh, for the state. Uh, he held the line on ongoing spending. He didn't want to outdrive the, the headlights of what might be uh, in front of us. So just to put it in context, uh, we saw 23% revenue growth last year. That's the equivalent of four years of revenue growth in a single year. I think uh, Governor Little is wise and prudent to not bank on that level of revenue growth into the foreseeable future. Kevin, I want to bring the conversation to education. You know, one of the biggest parts of the budget every year, the, the biggest part of the budget every year. What stood out to you? Well, what stands out in the budget is um, it's a mix of a lot of proposals that we've heard from the governor before. I mean, he has been steadfast about literacy and what he's trying to do with this budget. He didn't go into a lot of the details about it, but what he's doing with this proposed budget is putting $47 more million into literacy in the form of what could be an all-day kindergarten program if school districts uh, decide to go that route of providing all-day kindergarten to, to all of their students. That's where you get that. And that's been a pretty widely discussed idea these past uh, few months, and I think it'll be widely discussed issue these next uh, few months as the session unfolds. A lot of money into teacher salaries. Uh, the governor didn't go into a lot of details, but the upshot of what's in the budget in terms of teacher pay is a plan that would basically provide two years' worth of pay raises, two years' worth of funding through the career ladder, 
in one year. And that's a combination of state funding, but also interestingly, it's also some federal money, some federal coronavirus aid in that as well. Alex, let's get into the specifics on that teacher pay plan. Governor Little's budget would increase the public school's general fund contribution by about $300 million uh, with an 11% general fund increase. It would also accelerate the implementation of the career ladder, basically meaning that teachers would be seeing a 10% increase um, on average. And there's also a 5% increase in compensation for classified staff. We're talking custodians, uh, kitchen managers, secretaries, that sort of thing. I is that enough to address some of the critical staff shortages that Idaho schools have been seeing, especially with pandemic uh, illnesses and closures? Sure. Well, Melissa, uh, as I noted, this is the largest investment in education in state history, dollar-wise. It's the largest percent increase since 1999. Uh, in terms of the career ladder, uh, Governor Little let out on that two years ago, and we passed a bill that will layer in teacher increases over the next five years. The market's changed since Governor passed that bill. Uh, the labor market has tightened. Uh, the uh, inflation has uh, gone to a record level. It hasn't been this high in 40 years. So circumstances have changed. And uh, the governor reflected that by saying, we need to accelerate the career ladder implementation. A 10% pay bump uh, will be one of the largest in state history for teachers. And this will be critical to attracting and retaining. But the other thing you've got to look at is the governor is putting 105 million ongoing in this budget to teacher health insurance. And that also benefits anyone that works at a school from uh, those who work in school nutrition to the janitors. And what that means is the state's putting $4,000 more a year to each of their health insurance benefits. That should allow them to have better health insurance coverage at lower cost. That means more money back in the pockets of anybody uh, who works in a school uh, by having uh, the a larger share of their benefits cost covered by the state. Uh, so between the pay and benefits, uh, I feel confident in saying this is the largest investment in state history. When we're talking about the $47 million in ongoing or ongoing for literacy programs, there's a lot of local control that is built into that proposal. Is there accountability built into that proposal to make sure that the state isn't throwing money at a problem without any real metrics for success? Uh, last year, this legislature passed and this governor signed a bill that is called the Literacy Accountability Act. So I, I think it's safe to say that there our accountability measures that are uh, built into this. Since the governor took office, he would have, if this passes, he's increased the literacy line item fivefold. When he started, it was 13 million. His first year, he doubled that to 26 million. This adds 47 million on top of this. This is ensuring that schools have the resources to have all kids reading by third grade. That's one of those critical inflection points. I think the evidence bears that individuals who can read by third grade have more success in life, and the governor wants to set up all of our children and grandchildren for lifelong success. You know, Kevin, so many of these conversations have been going on for years at the legislature. Uh, one of the proposals in Governor Little's budget is $5 million for empowering parents grants, um, pitched as a way to help families pay for education costs. This builds on um, a pandemic-related program that helped parents with some of the at-home learning costs. What are you expecting to see that conversation turn into? 
Well, I wouldn't imagine that there's a lot of debate about the need for the money. I mean, this is another example. The governor talked about doubling down on a lot of things. This is another program where he's doubling down. In 2020, you had a program, a $50 million grant program that was federally funded that was wildly successful. I mean, the state had more applicants for that money than I think uh, uh, they could have possibly envisioned. A lot of parents wanting a share of that money to help pay for broadband or to help pay for a laptop or a Chromebook. Now the governor wants to come back, and again, this would be federal money, uh, one-time federal money to put another $50 million into grants. What the governor isn't talking about yet, and what will be really interesting to see is exactly where would that money go? It, it might not just go into, it might not just go into laptops or internet connectivity in the households. The, the issue that was really hotly contested on this last year was whether that money should also go into scholarships to allow parents to send their kids to private schools. That's an extremely controversial topic. That gets you into a lot of constitutional matters uh, in terms of uh, is this a backdoor school voucher plan. That will be, I think, the sticking point in the debate is where does this money go and how does that scholarship slash voucher proposal fit into the mix or not fit into that mix? This is all conversation surrounding K through 12 public education. We haven't even touched on higher education, not much mention of higher ed in the governor's speech, Dr. Witt, but uh, there are budget highlights um, that, that we have in front of us. We know that there's a 7.1% proposed budget increase for universities, a 4.8% increase for community colleges. Uh, what are you going to be looking for this session in those debates? Well, higher education should probably feel happy if they get away without more cuts uh, after last session. It was not a good session for higher ed. Uh, hopefully that uh, inclination is softened and gone away. I think uh, this 7.1% increase for higher education is sizable and important, and it does a very important thing. It, it is shifting some of the cost off of the backs of the parents and families and students who are paying tuition, which is the only way to recoup those increased costs, uh, and, and keeping it at the state. And I think that higher ed figures into all of our economic development hopes and dreams, and you know we need those universities working. So I, I'm pleased, not only self-interestedly, <laughs> that, uh, that there's a proposed increase, but just on behalf of the state. Let's remember last year. I mean, what happened with the budget last year, the $2.5 million that was cut from the university budgets over the whole social justice agenda debate had nothing to do with balancing the budget. It was all about politics, and it was all about uh, legislators wanting to send a message to the campuses, uh, you know, some would argue a punitive message to the campuses about you know, what's happening in terms of social justice. That debate is not going to go away. If anything, I think we're going to see it just intensify this next session. Mm -hmm. Alex, I'd love your take on this. From the governor's perspective, how do you navigate this proposed budget increase when there are still lawmakers who are incredibly unhappy with Idaho's higher education institutes? Melissa, I think the thing you'll see with the governor's proposal for higher ed is he was very surgical in where he applied the funds. He invested in programs like uh, nuclear engineering and healthcare was also a big focus. You'll see uh, when you go through the higher ed budget, he focused heavily on expanding class size of uh, nursing programs at some of the four-year institutions and uh, building a, a new building for the College of Western Idaho that will increase 
uh, everything from uh, respiratory therapists to medical assistants. So uh, he was pretty targeted in ensuring that these investments are in line uh, with where the state is heading. You know, it sounds like they're going back to the local control conversation. I think a lot of people were expecting to hear more conversation about full day kindergarten. And there certainly was a mention of full day kindergarten in the literacy program, the early childhood education program. Alex, is this not the year that we're going to see a statewide full day kindergarten proposal supported by the governor's office? Well, currently under Idaho law, the primary way that school districts use state dollars for the funding of full day kindergarten is through the literacy line item. And when the governor doubled that line item in 2019, you saw school districts like Valley View and Nampa immediately turn around and say they were going to start offering full day kindergarten. So the amount of money that the governor was putting that line item uh, is uh, in excess of what recent proposals for full day kindergarten uh, have been. Uh, so I think it's safe to say that this would give school districts the resources to offer it or provide other things that would address local need, reading interventionists, uh, summer reading programs, uh, things of that nature, but the funding is built into the governor's budget. And it's not through the literacy dollars. Schools are forced to pay for all-day kindergarten through some very unpopular <laughs> approaches, whether it's property taxes in the form of supplemental levies, or whether it's in the form of tuition and fees, which are now the subject of a, of a lawsuit, uh, those are not very popular. Those are not very palatable proposals. And yet, nonetheless, you've had most school districts try to figure out a way to provide all-day kindergarten because parents are really looking for it. Let's move on to tax cuts. This is something that I know both lawmakers and the governor are pretty excited about. Uh, Alex, can you give us the rundown on the income tax reduction and rebate proposal? Sure. Well, you heard from the governor, uh, passed his prologue. Uh, we've got, uh, in this governor's first term, uh, nearly a billion dollars in uh, taxes, and he's proposing another billion dollars over the next five years. Uh, he proposed to do, through, do so through income tax relief, and he's calling for $350 million in immediate income tax rebates that would go out this year. Uh, he sees this as counter to the surging inflation under President Biden and putting more money back in the pockets of Idahoans to help them deal with those record levels of inflation. Uh, moving forward, it would cut $250 million uh, ongoing and growing as the economy grows. Uh, so what the proposal would do is it would consolidate income tax brackets uh, from five brackets to four, make it flatter and fairer, uh, while lowering the top rate uh, from 6.5% down to 6% for both uh, businesses and individuals. Again, that would put more money back in the pockets of uh, working Idahoans uh, throughout the year. This morning, I know a number of conservative lawmakers came together to talk about their priorities for the session. One of the proposals that we heard was, uh, again, getting rid of Idaho's grocery tax on food. Idaho is one of only a few states that fully taxes food. Uh, we have a clip from that press conference. Um, we can give you a look. Um, I know a lot of agencies and government programs see that money and they want to spend it. But I look at the taxpayers, the forgotten man in Idaho, and they're the ones who are paying the taxes that generate these surpluses. Our first uh, priority is to make sure the money belongs uh, to those who earn it and that it needs to be returned to the taxpayers. And one of the clearest and obvious ways to is to repeal the tax on groceries. Idaho is one of only five states that fully taxes groceries. 
conservative red state Idaho is only one of five states that fully taxes groceries. In fact, we have the third highest tax on food of any state in the nation. That should not be working in Idaho. The grocery tax is a regressive tax. This will benefit lower income families more than upper income families, and it's time we repealed it. That was Rexburg Republican Representative Ron Nate. Dr. Witt, I, I, I want to ask you about the impact of the grocery tax on the border communities, because again, this isn't a new debate that we've had in Idaho. No, I've been here 31 years. We've talked about repealing the grocery tax the entire time. Um, I think that this could offer, uh, if the grocery tax was repealed, it would offer some relief to border counties, like for example, next to Oregon, where citizens may be driving into Oregon to do their grocery shopping to avoid those sales taxes. So you would expect a little uh, bounce, you know, for the Idaho counties that, that would like to keep their residents home shopping. Uh, anytime you talk about tax relief, of course, you have to talk about whether you're going to replace that money somehow in the budget. And that's that's a, an ongoing question. I was kind of surprised this morning to hear uh, that statement about the grocery tax repeal because typically the grocery tax repeal is, is uh, something f put forward by progressives, you know, because it is such a regressive tax. It really pinches the poor uh, more than it does the, the rich to pay taxes on groceries and everybody has to have groceries, right? So I was a little surprised. It's something that comes up every year Obviously, this wasn't the top line priority for the governor. Well, and this is something that conservatives have long talked about in Idaho, along with a, a, a number of progressives. Alex, I want to ask you about that. If a proposal were to make it to the governor's desk, would he sign it on grocery tax? The, the, the governor has always been clear if a bill on grocery tax uh, relief gets to his desk, he would sign it. Well, we have about eight minutes left in the show, and I, I want to get to transportation and infrastructure. It's such a critically important part of this puzzle for the state. Well, let's start with transportation. The governor's proposed budget would fully fund transportation deferred maintenance with a $200 million ongoing investment that would see a 60-40 split between the state and local governments. There would also be a $200 million one-time investment to improve bridges. Let's start there. Alex, again, the, the governor, as when he was lieutenant governor, chaired the transportation uh, committee exploring all of the issues that Idaho had with transportation funding. We haven't solved it yet. Uh, it, do you think that this is the year to get enough people on board after years of trialing, of trying and not getting to that deferred maintenance? As you said, Melissa, this has been a top priority for the governor since he was uh, lieutenant governor and chaired that uh, task force. Uh, one of the first things he did in office was uh, re-establish a task force to quantify what we would need to add an ongoing funding uh, to fully maintain and repair our roads and uh, bridges. And that study uh, came out last year. It was called the Moving Idaho Forward Study. And it found uh, that there was a $240 million ongoing gap that was needed uh, to maintain and repair both state and local roads. Uh, we had signed uh, some bills, the governor had signed some bills over the last two years uh, that closed $40 million of that gap. Uh, so the ongoing gap was 200 million. He's proposed fully covering that ongoing gap as part of this budget. This is a matter of safety. This is a matter of commerce. 
simply put, having a strong, robust infrastructure system is key to our uh, continued economic prosperity. And this would close that gap. As you noted, he's also putting $200 million one time uh, to local bridges. Uh, we had worked uh, with some of the local uh, partners as well as ITD and the backlog for local bridges is about 600 million. Those are bridges that are more than 50 years old. I mean, frankly, those are bridges that predate the Nixon administration. These are things that have load restrictions or are otherwise impeding commerce. Uh, so the governor is leveraging part of that one-time surplus uh, to refurbish, repair, and maintain a third of that local bridge backlog. Dr. Witt, what stood out about this proposal to you? Well, I, I personally think it's great uh, that every year I'm usually noting, gosh, why aren't we fully funding the backlog and maintenance on infrastructure? And it, and here we have a proposal to do it. Now, a proposal in the governor's speech and, and assigned bills, there's a lot in between there. So the legislature may not see this uh, as, as much of a priority as the governor does, but I hope so. Um, I, you and I talked earlier, uh, it's interesting about the 60-40 split. I don't know if there is another funnel of money that go, that's directly to counties that might help them pay that 40% part, uh, that, but given the amount of the surplus that we have, it's curious that we're maintaining that 60-40 split. I can't speak for the cities or counties, but I would assume they might welcome some help. Alex, I'd love to get your take on that. You know, why, when we know that some of these local municipalities and taxing districts really have been struggling to fund these projects, why continue that 60-40 split mechanism? Uh, well, so we're, we're following the evidence of the Moving Idaho Forward study. So that was a study that was put together with academic experts as well as uh, business and industry. And what that uh, study quantified was the backlog uh, for state roads was 126 million and the backlog for local roads was 109 million. Uh, so what this does is this gives 80 million to locals ongoing. And then if you look at the bills the governor signed in the past two years, uh, the one that he signed last year added uh, 25 million uh, ongoing to local road maintenance. And the one before that was somewhere like 5 million. So uh, we fully achieved the levels that are in the moving Idaho forward study uh, so uh, we're letting the evidence take us to the destination, not some arbitrary percentage split. And Kevin, another big part of this infrastructure package is $225 million of federal funds to upgrade broadband infrastructure. That's at the direction of the Idaho Broadband Advisory Committee. Big implications for education in rural communities. Yeah, and I think that's all been underscored these past couple of years with the pandemic as more education has moved online either by necessity or in some cases by, by choice. Parents and, and, and kids and you know deciding that this is the way that they want to pursue education. So I think there's there's definitely more focus on the importance of broadband than maybe we had a few years ago. And there's, you know, again, with a $1.9 billion bu budget surplus as the governor is now couching it, there's, there's the money there. 
Yeah, the governor touched on a number of other things in his speech, including uh, election integrity and public safety, water infrastructure. There were some things that we didn't hear about, or at least not very much, Alex. Um, one of them was the housing shortage in the state. Uh, affordable housing has been a real issue with recruiting workers for those jobs that Idaho has plenty of. Daycare shortages, um, no real mention of avoiding future crisis standards of care, which of course the state went through for 70 days um, this past fall, although there was a thank you for the healthcare workers. Um, when it comes to those issues that we've heard so much about over the course of the last six years, are we gonna hear proposals on housing or daycare worker shortages from the governor? Sure. Uh, so, Melissa, you know, one of the challenges is putting together the speech each year is the amount of time you have uh, relative to the amount of priorities that you have. Uh, so uh, certainly details and the other proposals will come out in the coming days. I know tomorrow I'll be presenting to the budget committee and we'll be going through in much granular detail some of those proposals. I'll, I'll touch on housing just briefly. Uh, one of the things the state has uh, access to this year is uh, money from ARPA. And there's some limited range of discretion that states can use those ARPA dollars for, uh, one of which is workforce housing. Uh, this is a topic the governor's heard from uh, quite a few industry leaders across the state. I know when I was with them at different business roundtables in any corner of the state, housing came up as an issue, uh, impeding the growth uh, of our state and the growth of uh, businesses. Uh, so the governor is proposing that the legislature use some of those ARPA dollars uh, for housing in accordance with US Treasury guidance. We have less than a minute left, Kevin. Um, in the first couple weeks of the session, what are you expecting to see from lawmakers? Well, I think it's gonna start very quickly. I mean, Alex mentioned that he's gonna be before the budget committee on Tuesday. State Superintendent Ibarra is before the budget committee on Monday, a week from today, very early in the session to make her budget presentation on K-12. Now, her interpretation of how to fund all day kindergarten or her, her take on teacher salaries, the session's going to be in very quickly and very fast. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for watching. We'll see you back here on Friday night for a recap of the first week of the legislative session. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.